Well, first things first, I think if you were here last week, you may have heard a few references to Redskins football as well as my abilities as a quarterback. So I just want to make a few things straight here. Back in 1992, I used to be able to throw a pigskin a quarter mile. How much you want to bet I can hit it up there on the balcony? If coach would have put me in the fourth quarter, we'd have been state champions. No doubt. No doubt in my mind. I could have turned pro. That's even funnier for those of you who know Napoleon Dynamite. Me and Uncle Rico right here. For those of you who weren't here last week, you may not understand the reference to football. But what James was talking about, he was uh, talking about the object of our faith. You can like me a lot. You can uh, sincerely want me to be the quarterback of your NFL team. But at the end of the day, I'm going to let you down because I don't have the ability to quarterback your team in the NFL. And he's right. You'd be better off having more faith in Tom Brady. The point he was making was... It's not about the quality or the quantity of our faith. It's about the object of our faith. And that's good news for you and me because today we're going to encounter Gideon, a man with weak faith or winepress faith. And the Lord comes to him. And the Lord comes to him in this story and he gives him one word, grace. And there's one word for us today in this story for those of us who have weak Winepress faith and its grace. And there's three ways that we can see grace in this passage. So let me put this football up. I was going to throw it to James, uh, but, uh, you know, he's used to playing with his feet, so he didn't show back up in the service. <laughs> I think he was getting me back for wearing his shirt uh, a few weeks ago, talking about my football ability. The one word answer for the skeptical and the fearful in Judges chapter 6 grace. The first way that we see grace in the first six verses is that grace is often interrupting. Now, as we do this Advent series, we bounce around in several places in the Bible. So let me orient you to Judges. Judges takes place after the oppression and deliverance of the Israelites in Egypt and before the monarchs or the kings of Israel. The people are living in the promised land in Canaan and they are supposed to be flourishing. But instead of flourishing, they go through 12 cycles of being enslaved, experiencing destruction, and then being set free again. You see, what happened to them, once they got into the promised land, they forgot about God. They forgot about God because God was no longer a necessity. They had an independent lifestyle, and they thought all was well with it. It's like what we do when we are comfortable. God becomes a luxury, an expendable option. It's like a parachute for an airman. It's there for, God is there for emergencies, but you hope you never have to use him. And what God was doing is he was allowing them to experience destruction in their life in order for them to experience a deliverer. Twelve times this happens in the book of Judges. In the Advent devotional that you got, Jeff lays out the outline for these cycles. There would be sin, and then judgment, and then repentance, and then finally, deliverance. And so when we come to Judges 6, this is the fifth cycle in the book of Judges. And in verse 1, we see that the people of Israel 
did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. Now what's happening here, the text goes on to describe, is every year the Midianites would raid the Israelites. They'd bring their friends and they'd come on their secret weapon, the camel, and they would be able to travel uh, more days without water and it allowed them to come into the land like locusts, it says. What do locusts do? They devour everything. And so every year after they had worked so hard to provide food for their family, the Midianites and the Amalekites and their friends would come in and they would eat all of their crops, they would take all their livestock, and they would camp there for months at a time. And the Israelites would be forced to flee into the mountains for safety. Can't you imagine how hard this would be year after year? You work and you work to provide food for your family. And then like clockwork, the lookout calls out again, they're coming, they're coming, here come the marauders. You grab up what you can, you grab your family, and you head for the hills like scared rabbits. Can't you just imagine your children asking every year, do we have to go back to the caves? And the pain in the parents as they answer, yes, in order to survive, we must go to the caves. And it's amazing. They experience this not just once, not twice, three times, four times, five times, six times, and seven times, until finally, verse 6, they were brought low. Where Hebrew literally means they were brought, made small. And finally, after seven years, they cried out to the Lord. You know, verse 1, it's really strong language attributed to the Lord. It says, He gave them into the hand of the Midianites. That's the same language that Paul uses in Romans 1, 24 and 26, when he says, God gave them up, or God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. God's grace through this trouble is interrupting them in order to free them. One of the ways that we experience common grace is that God will allow us to experience the natural consequences for our sinful choices. When we experience these types of trouble, it shatters the illusion that all is well. Because all is not well if we don't have the Lord. Interrupting grace is when God gives us what we think we want in order to show us what we really need. C.S. Lewis writes about this in The Problem of Pain, and apparently he's a member of our church on that uh, text alert. It's uh, C.S. Lewis. I just noticed that when James was making the announcement. So uh, many of you may know C.S., uh, but he wrote this book, Problem of Pain, the very famous uh, quote uh, about pain, and he writes this. He says, We can even ignore pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. 
It's a really good chapter, and towards the end of it, he also says this. No doubt, pain as God's megaphone is a terrible instrument. It may lead to final and unrepented rebellion, but it gives the only opportunity the bad man can have for amendment. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. In other words, God shatters our illusion of self-sufficiency through interrupting grace for our good in order to save us and for his glory. Now, I need to go down just a rabbit trail just for a moment and talk about suffering and trouble. Let me give you three points about how God uses trouble as interrupting grace. First, repeated consistent sin patterns will always bring their own consequences. Not because God is vindictive, but because God loves us too much to let us get away with sin, which will break and corrupt us. You can see Hebrews 12 for more of that. Second, make sure you hear this one. This one's really important. We should not assume that any trouble or suffering is necessarily due to sin in our lives. Suffering will always have a purpose in God's plan for us, but it is not necessarily sent to awaken us because of some besetting sin. There are some troubles that we experience in life that are not a result of our sin, but it's a result of living in a fallen, broken world. Okay? The third one is this. Don't pursue trouble or suffering thinking that you're holier for it. Don't think as a Christian you have to be suffering and pursue it unnecessarily. When you live long enough, there's enough suffering out there that you'll experience it and you'll come in contact with it. So just remember those three things about suffering and trouble. Now, let's get back to the main road, talking about grace. When you're experiencing this trouble, this suffering, this weight, what are you to do? Cry out to the Lord and He will show up in surprising ways. And that's what we see in verses 7 through 10. God shows up in a surprising way. The people of Israel cry out to the Lord and they expect him to send a deliverer, a military uh, uh, person, to set them free from oppression like he'd done in the previous four cycles. But instead, he sends them a prophet. (laughs) Here we are, Lord. Here our cry. Wait. You sent a prophet, not a deliverer. Israel must have felt like you or me if we were broken down our I-66 and we called the garage and they sent a philosopher instead of a mechanic. We wouldn't be too happy about that. These people wanted deliverance, but God first sends them an explanation. And what does the prophet explain? He reminds them of the covenant that God had made with them. He reminds them of their covenant privileges that God had set his love on them and said, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will deliver you out of bondage. He reminds them of their covenant obligations. Because I have rescued you, because I have redeemed you, because I have set you free, you shall worship no other gods but me. And then he reminded them of the covenant consequences. That if you fail to uphold your end of the covenant, there will be cursings. And those cursings were actually spelled out in Deuteronomy 28 with 
great clarity. And this is exactly what Israel was experiencing in this moment. Their land was being devoured by the Midianites who were like locusts. And what the Lord, the the prophet wants them to do is to connect verse 1, that they're in the, the hand of Midian, with verse 10, because you have not obeyed my voice. God tells them that their circumstances were directly related to their disobedience. Now let's directly apply that to us for a moment. Sometimes God sends us a sermon before he sends us a savior. Sometimes we want to escape our circumstances, but God wants to interpret them. Sometimes we need understanding more than relief. Sometimes we need insight before safety. We want God to just fix the car to get rid of the pain, but God wants to do something in us because the problem that we all have is not what's out there primarily, but what's in here, the heart. And we are often waiting for God to do something for us rather than for God to do something in us. In other words, we may be saying, Lord, why don't you remove this problem instead of, Lord, make me a person who can handle and cope with this problem. It's a good thing to pray for safety, but we also need to pray for courage. One pastor used this illustration. It's like people on a boat and a rock ahead of us is sticking three feet out of the water and it will destroy our boat. We pray, Lord, remove the rock, but God may be wanting to raise the level of the water four feet to go over the rock. Often God wants to do a great work of character formation within you rather than to remove the obstacle or problem from your life. See, God is telling us that our biggest problem is not our circumstances, but it's our idolatry. All of us have something that we're serving in our lives. All of us have inordinate affections, appetites, and controlling motives in our hearts. All of us have little mini shrines inside of us where we give allegiance and love to lesser gods and God substitutes. How do you know what is functioning as the God in your life? You can just ask two questions. What rescues you out of loneliness, anxiety, and despair? When you have those feelings, what do you do? Where do you turn? Or second, what lust in life electrifies you? However you answer those two questions will probably give you a good clue of what's functioning as the God in your life, the God substitute. And those idols, those God substitutes, will work for a season. But eventually they'll let you down. They'll wreak havoc on your internal being. They will enslave you and they will be a destructive force to everything around you. And just like the people of Israel, we need a prophet We need to hear the voice of the Lord in his word to intersect with our competing idols and hold them down to the ground and destroy them and pull them out to the root. You see, before God's going to destroy our enemies, he wants to destroy our idols. You and I need to see our primary problem is inward, not 
outward. And when we do, we will see that God is actually sustaining us by his means of grace, the word. What could be more kind of the Lord than to convince us of our sin, to expose the reasons for our helplessness and misery? And this is what is amazing. Israel has failed to uphold their end of the bargain. And verse 11 should be a story about how God just destroyed them. You know, there never should have been a Genesis 4, right? Adam and Eve should have sinned, and immediately they should have been held liable for their cosmic treason and rebellion. But instead, we get verse 11. God sends the angel of the Lord to raise up a deliverer for a people who have not obeyed his voice. You see, sustaining grace is when God is overcoming all obstacles to save and to preserve us when he should judge us and condemn us. Sustaining grace is when God is overcoming all obstacles to save us and to preserve us when he should judge us and condemn us. The God of mercy comes to those with wine-pressed faith to transform our lives. And that's what we see in the third section, verses 11 through 24. We see transforming grace. You see, Gideon is hiding out in the wine press below the earth trying to thresh wheat. Most of us aren't wheat farmers, so we don't understand that. Let me explain it to you. Whenever you were going to thresh wheat, you had to go up on top of a hill where the wind would be blowing, so when you threshed it, the grain would fall to the ground. He was hiding, the text tells us, he was afraid of the Midianites, and so he was stooping down in the wine press. And then the angel of the Lord shows up and calls him, What? Mighty man of valor or mighty warrior? He's not a mighty warrior, he's a scared farmer. Can't you just imagine Gideon when he hears the voice of the angel? Who, me? I'm afraid to even thresh wheat. You want me to do what? You got to be out of your mind. And don't you even know about me and my family? If you read further in Judges chapter 6, he is actually uh, one of the worship leaders for Baal. His dad was one of the uh, worship leaders for one of the cult religions for Baal. At best, Gideon is a pluralistic skeptic. And God shows up. And meets him. That's good news for skeptics. We love skeptics here at MPC. And God loves to show up even when we're afraid and even when we're skeptical. And he shows up and he gives us a name and he treats us as a mighty warrior before Gideon ever was, i.e., Peter. Gideon was not what he was, but what he would become when God. Transforming grace finished with him. God is at work in Gideon's life to make him into his name. And I love Gideon. He just argues with the angel of the Lord repeatedly, probably like I would have done. He argues with the angel. His first objection in verse 13, he says, If God is with us, then why is all this happened? Now, the answer for Gideon was that he didn't pay attention to the prophet. 
Because the prophet said, it's because of your rebellion. But his second objection was in verse 15. How can I overcome suffering because I'm too weak? I'm from the wrong side of the tracks. I'm from Mississippi, not D.C. You can't call me to do this. Or Tennessee, I should knock my own home state. I apologize if you're from Mississippi. We love you. (laughs) My family lived there. He's saying, I don't have what it takes. I'm weak and I'm from the worst family. And God says, you can do it. Because why? I am with you. We don't have time to go into that. That's another sermon that he gave to Moses. But I want to focus on his third objection in verse 17. He says, God, how can I be sure? How can I know for certain that you are who you say you are and you will do what you have said you will do? And God answers his third objection regarding certainty with what? A sign. The flame. In verse 21, you see Gideon leaves to prepare an offering and he asks the Lord, he says, will you wait? And the angel says, yes. And so he goes off for several hours to prepare this improper sacrifice. He brings it back. The angel of the Lord says, put it on the rock. He uses his staff. He touches it. And the improper sacrifice is consumed. It's incinerated instantly. And then the angel of the Lord vanishes. What was the flame? What did the flame mean to Gideon? Do you see how he responds? He realizes, A, that he met the Lord face to face, and B, that he was not consumed. The flame that consumed the sacrifice was a sign of an acceptance of his offering. It's amazing when you think about this. Several thousands of years before Jesus would come, grace was being expressed in this moment. How were people in the Old Testament saved? Romans tells us, by grace through faith. Grace was pouring out backwards from the cross to the people in the Old Testament. And the other thing that amazes me, remember this flame, this torch, this smoking fire part, the pre-incarnate Christ was the same one present at the covenant made with Abraham when the smoking fire pot went down between the sections of the animals and saying, if you fail to uphold the covenant, may I be ripped in two, may I be consumed. And here we see the pre-incarnate Christ meeting with the people who have not upheld their end of the covenant, and he knows what this will mean for him. It's an amazing moment of grace. And Gideon gets it. His theophany turns to an epiphany because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a holy moment for Gideon when he's stripped of his self-sufficiency and he sits in overwhelmed amazement with humble adoration of this amazing holy God who is a consuming fire and he is not consumed. And as a result, he names this altar peace. It's the Hebrew word meaning shalom, wholeness and completeness. What Israel was supposed to be experiencing, he promised to do. Now let's apply this to us. God gave Gideon a sign of certainty. He also gives us a sign of certainty. He gives us a greater Gideon. If you remember the story in Luke chapter 2, another angel announced to fearful 
folks out in the fields to shepherds saying, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a what? A sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Jesus, who left the riches of his estate, came for those who are impoverished so that we might have the riches of his estate. You see, when we grasp that, when we understand that, we too will come to our own holy moment of gospel astonishment. Peace comes because the angel of the Lord comes while we are afraid and he calls us mighty warrior. He is pleased with us. Why? Because he is pleased with the sacrifice, Jesus. That is transforming grace. That is special grace. And when that comes into our lives, we will be transformed for all of eternity. Transforming grace is when God gives us the power to become what we are not and to flourish like we do not deserve. So you see, grace comes to those with wine-pressed faith. Grace will interrupt you, it will sustain you, and it will transform you. Came across a story from my second favorite Scottish pastor. James is not even in here for me to reap the rewards of that. Tells a story of moving from Aberdeen to Glasgow and overseeing his books being loaded and unloaded to go to his new study. Pastors, if you don't know, have a lot of books. And his children wanted to help him move his books, including his little four-year-old son. So he gave his little four-year-old son a small job to just carry a few light pamphlets. But this four-year-old little boy was very ambitious, so he grabbed some heavy commentaries. And it wasn't long before Macmillan heard his four-year-old son weeping in the hall. Macmillan went to him and said this. I knelt, I knelt down, picked up my boy and his burden, and I carried both of them to their destination. That's what Grace is doing for Gideon in this story. Grace is picking up his boy and his burden, and he's carrying him and his people to their destination. God will do the same for me and you. He will pick us up and our trouble. He will bear our weight. He will wear our shame. And he will take us to our destination. How can you know for certain? Because Jesus has come and he will come again. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you might lead us to these holy moments where you deposit grace in our souls, where we know that we are justly deserving of your displeasure, but in your amazing grace, you have lavished your riches upon us, that you have given us all that we need and all that we want. So, Father, thank you for the grace of when you came over 2,000 years ago. And thank you for the grace that sustains us between the advent or the coming. Keep us safe. Preserve your people until you come back 
and finish what you started. Help this Christmas and Advent season to be a sign of certainty about who you are, what you will do, and that we can trust you. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.